Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Andrew Gundren. Today our guest is Carl Hart, Associate Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at Columbia University and author of the book High Price, a neuroscientist's journey of self-discovery that challenges everything you know about drugs in society. We'll be speaking with him about surprising discoveries about psychoactive drug use and how neuroscience can better inform policy. All this and more coming up. of psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University and author of the 2013 book, High Price. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Hart. Happy to be here, man. So first, we'd just like to ask everyone who comes on to tell us a little bit about their background and where they grew up, in case we understand that that's in Florida, and then just ask if you were interested in science as a kid and a little bit about your uh, journey early on in life. Right on. I grew up in a hood where people consider the projects or what have you in Miami. Growing up, I certainly was not on track to become a scientist. Uh, I thought that I was actually going to become a professional basketball player. I didn't get the scholarship that I thought I would get. So I had to go to the Air Force. And in the Air Force, I discovered that I could actually go to university. And so I began going to university in the Air Force. Uh, but while in the, univer- while in the Air Force and studying, I started to see some, some of the errors of my previous ways. So like growing up, um, I carried a gun, used drugs, sold drugs, did a lot of things that would be considered deviant behavior in the mainstream. In the Air Force, I wanted to kind of make amends, atone for my previous sort of sins, if you would. So I was kind of wrapped up in that whole Christian mythology, you know, that those myths that they kind of perpetuate on society. I actually believed that. And so I dedicated myself to school in order to figure out how I could make a difference, make a contribution. And I, I studied psychology as an undergraduate, and I thought I wanted to be a counselor of youth. Uh, about the same time, this was in the mid-80s, at the same time, crack cocaine was a big deal in the country, and people were hysterical about it, uh, particularly in communities uh, from which I came, those type of communities. So I figured that, oh, I could study drugs and learn something about why crack cocaine is making everyone so addicted. And if I studied the neurobiology and then I could maybe solve or figure out the puzzle, uh, then I could help fix the poverty and crime that I saw in my community that I thought was caused by crack cocaine. But, of course, after many years of study, I no longer believe that the problems were crack cocaine problem. They were bigger problems. Poverty, unemployment, mainstream society not caring about poor people, the works. Was there a particular event while you were in the military, or was it sort of this progression that you wanted to pursue research to help the community that you wanted to help? Yeah, it wasn't a particular event because, you know, while I was in the military, I, I should tell you that while I was in the military, I originally was stationed in Okinawa, Japan, and while in Okinawa, Japan, if anybody knows anything about Okinawa, we call it the rock because there's nothing there. So one of the activities that I used to engage in with my friends was we used to smoke marijuana. And so as a result of smoking marijuana, one could get kicked out in the military. And one of the things I was trying to do was I said I had to have a contingency plan. All right, if I get kicked out in the military, at least I'm going to college and I'll have some college credits. And so... 
I went to college in order to, as a contingency plan for smoking marijuana. So marijuana was the reason I went to college. Along the way, I learned some things. I, I, I learned a lot about American society. As James, James Baldwin has said that as one becomes educated and more conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. And that's what happened to me. And so over the course of this undergraduate education, being stationed in Japan, being stationed in England, I got my uh, sort of desire to be better at formal education was intensified. And so it just was a gradual process. So I was still, you know, someone who could screw up at any moment, even though I was in class, because, you know, I was still, I was still doing my thing. I was still hood. After leaving the military, you went on to get a, a PhD in neuroscience. Uh, can you describe sort of how you settled on neuroscience? And then did you explore other fields within neuroscience or were you always very focused on addiction? Yeah, research? so when I got out of the military, I went to the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, just to finish up a few classes before my bachelor's degree. I met a guy, Rob Haken, who was studying uh, neurophysiological effects of morphine and nicotine in the rat nucleus accumbens. He thought that I was really dedicated and smart, so he invited me to work in his lab. And I had never done stereotactic surgery and monitored single-cell firing, and it was cool. And I thought I was finding out how the brain worked. And I did that for about a year and a half, two years, and I just got turned on to this notion that I could actually figure out how the brain worked, and I could maybe help people understand why crack cocaine was so addictive. And so that was it for me. And it was, we're talking the early 90s. That was about 1990. And that was the George Bush one um, uh, released this proclamation, the decade of the brain. That was the decade of the brain, 1990 to 2000. And so this is, I guess, our second decade of the brain. Obama now, uh, you know, is <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, uh, that's a great point. It's a sad point, too, because one of the things that has happened from 1990 to 2000 was declared the decade of the brain. That was great. Uh, we had a lot of funding for graduate students to go to get their PhDs and undergraduates to get interested. Great. The thing is, is that as we have this continuation of the decade of the brain, people in science and then people in the popular sort of spheres uh, have forgotten about behavior and they forgot that behavior is far more important and uh, and that's troubling and so that's one of the things that I'm trying to highlight with my work it's like we try to understand the brain so we know why people behave the way they behave not the other way around but people have gotten it twisted and so does that explain from your start working in animal models of how drugs may affect the brain. Many of your more recent studies use human subjects and particularly uh, are regular drug users or use even to some degree of regularity. So was that a conscious move on your part? Yeah, because when I finished my PhD, I could tell you everything about rats' cocaine habit, their nicotine's habit, their morphine habit. I could tell you everything about a rat and drug use. Couldn't tell you a damn thing about human drug use. Not one thing. And so one of the things that is a problem in the field in general 
is that many of the people who have these grand theories about drug abuse, they are animal researchers and would not know a drug user if they're sleeping with one. You know, the only drug user they know is the caricature that is on the wire, which is not reality, by the way, or on some other program. And so, yeah, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah. Was there a conscious moment you had when, you know, you were like, um, or just a poignant moment, either reading a paper or doing an experiment where you just, you had this mental shift where you like, I think uh, more powerful results to try and understand the phenomenon of human drug use lie elsewhere? Yeah, once I was, uh, so I did part of my PhD research at the NIH. So I was on the NIH campus for a couple years doing my research. And NIH, as you all know, is in Bethesda. Bethesda is right outside of D.C. At the time, this was the 90s, D.C. was damn near all black. So they used to bring high school students from the local area to the NIH and into labs, and they wanted to show off their researchers and I was one of the few black researchers. I was a student, but they brought people into the lab, kids from the local area, and they had the kids talk to me about what I was doing. And the kids were all fascinated by cocaine. I was doing cocaine work at the time. And they asked me questions about their loved ones, their mothers, their brothers, their uh, um, aunts and uncles and about their cocaine use. Why is my aunt? so addicted to crack? Why is this person uh, behaving this way when they're on crack? You know, I could tell them all about the rat, but I could not tell them anything about people. And that that highlighted for me a serious gap in my education. Is there something that you did take away from your PhD work that you do feel sort of informed how uh, at least you design human experiments? I mean, is there... Uh, parts of the animal work that you found more uh, satisfying than others? Uh, The question should be, would you trade your animal work for anything? I wouldn't trade that experience for nothing in the world. It It was where I learned how to think through problems. You know, when you're doing your experiments, it's just you and your rats, and you have to figure it out. Something's not working, and you have to figure it out. So I learned a tremendous amount about experimental design, particularly exercising all of this experimental control. You just don't get it with humans. Outstanding. That's one thing. Another thing that I learned, I learned a considerable amount about neurobiology and just neuroscience because you could use these invasive techniques that you can't use with humans. And so, so I got a solid, a solid neuroscience education as a result of having worked with laboratory animals. And uh, it's a solid education that number uh, numbers of people who, for example, only do neuroimaging will never have. And they've never done the sort of basic sort of science. Um, I think that, um, like my students, I am reluctant to take students who don't have any experience working with laboratory animals. I know we, we both cheated a little bit and, you know, watched a couple of YouTube videos of you uh, giving interviews. And one powerful point for me watching these videos was you uh, describing an experiment where uh, rats were given the opportunity to self-administer cocaine while alone or then, you know, in a a cage uh, where they had access to a mate or drugs. Can you describe in your own lab some of the research that you felt has been the most transformative 
in the past you know decade or so it's so hard because there's been so many things and i've said so much but I, I'll, I'll tell you the experiment that you were talking about uh the animal experiment one of the things that i as an undergraduate taking a course called drugs and behavior one of the things that the professor said that was that stayed with me was that if you give laboratory animals an opportunity to take the drugs self-administer you hook them up to an iv catheter and allow them to press a lever to receive injection of methamphetamine or cocaine or some other stimulant, they will do so until they die. That was powerful. So it was an indication that laboratory animals, rats, non-human primates, they will take these drugs until death. So it's like, wow, these drugs are really powerful. That's the message that all of our undergraduate class kind of left that day and that, that semester thinking that these drugs are so powerful that they can kill you. That's it. But then after graduating... Uh, with my PhD, I learned that there were other people doing those same types of experiments, particularly Bruce Alexander in uh, Toronto, I'm sorry, in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Uh, he did an experiment where he yep, gave the animals access to, in this case, morphine, unlimited access, and yeah, you can get that kind of behavior. But when you enrich the cage of that animal, uh, toys and sweet treats, a wide range of things, they don't behave like that. They don't take drug until death. In fact, they engage in these other activities. So for me, that was eye-opening. And we thought it would be interesting to, how about bringing this into a human lab with crack cocaine users? People have said that crack cocaine users could only respond to another hit of crack when crack's available. Right. I'm sorry, what year was this paper out of Professor Alexander's lab? Just uh, roughly... Early 80s. Okay. Early 80s. He did this in the early 80s. And then subsequently, there were people who did similar types of... He did it in rats. And then there were other people that did follow-up studies in non-human primates. They used things like banana chips and uh, sweet drinks. So it was replicated. So a number of people. Early 80s is when Bruce did it. And um, but you said in you know the '90s that you know the the prevailing climate was that the that drugs can lead to such powerful self stimulation that it can last up until death. Were the results not really well integrated into the field at that point? Did you think that's a generous way of putting it? Uh, that, uh, it's not that the results weren't well integrated into the field. The results didn't fit the story. The story was that these drugs are so powerfully addictive, and then we had this war on drugs going on, and then people were making a lot of money from the war on drugs, including researchers. We were increasing our budget, so the way you put it was really generous, <laughs> and probably the way that you should put it if you want to be a reporter. But if you want to be honest, that's not what that's not what I say. You know, so... Uh, as a result of me finally getting access to this and thinking about this and now being with a group of researchers in a lab that we had the resources to actually bring crack cocaine users into the lab, let's try that. Let's just simply give them a choice with something as small as $5 and see if they take every dose. And what we found was that the $5 was enough to at least shift the choice away from cocaine, crack cocaine, at least half of the time. And then in subsequent studies, I did things like increase the money, did other drugs like methamphetamine, where you gave them a choice with like $20. They never took the drug. So 
other people now have done this sort of thing, and it's this knowledge is common knowledge, but you still get this story that these drugs are so powerfully addictive, people will take them and kill themselves. When was that study where you had the subjects choose between the drugs and the $5 reward? That study was published in 2000. We did it in 98, 99. That must have been a particularly powerful moment. Was that the, the result that, you know, or one of the results that is, was most satisfying to get in your career? So at, at, that, at that time, I had, that was my second human publication, second publication in humans. And so when you said, was that result exciting to get? Any result was exciting to get at that time. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I thought that, I thought that it would be a splash. I thought people would be excited about it. It was ignored, man. Nobody, nobody cared. Until I published the book, High Price, in 2013, I did a discussion or talk at, uh, for this group called Reason. Reason Magazine, they are um, libertarian. This group of libertarians, I did a nice talk with those folks. And, and there was a New York Times reporter who was interviewing me, asking me questions. And so he was so fascinated with that study. He was like, I got to write about this. He wrote about it in 2013. And that's when maybe 14, 2013. And that's when it blew up. I mean, but the study had been out for almost 15 years and no one cared. Oh, nice uh, parallel with the previous result you talked about where it comes out and then it doesn't make as big of an impact as it's going to until... Um while later. Yeah, there are people who are, for example, today, as you and I are speaking, who are collecting some cool data and publishing some cool data. One of the problems with science, scientists, is that we don't know how to communicate. We don't know how to write. We don't know how to communicate. And so nobody's going to read your stuff. And nobody's going to listen to you because you have all of these caveats when you speak. It's like, Come on, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Uh, they don't have the time. Now, there's a way that you can speak and write that is appropriate in terms of your humility and our humility of the field. But you guys, have you guys been taught public speaking? Have you guys been taught anything about communicating your findings to the general public? Uh, have you been taught media training? Probably not. Uh, and it's critical. So I guess this is a good segue to your book, which is a good example of being able to, to communicate the science that scientists aren't very great all the time at communicating this to lay people. So in the book, you challenge a lot of the common views of drug perception and how most people view drug use. What would you say are the most common drug myths or misconceptions that you believe need to be changed or you know addressed to change the common viewpoint. When we think about some of the misconceptions, the major misconceptions that are related to drugs, one of the most important ones is that everybody who uses heroin, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, or the vast majority of those people who use those drugs are addicted. That's just simply not right. You know, uh, like me, I've used all of those drugs and paid up, pay my taxes, go to work, take care of my kids, do all of these sorts of things. And so... Um, and that's the typical drug user. But that's not the drug user that you see on um, Breaking Bad, on The Wire, 
you know, that sort of stuff does more harm for public education and public safety than most of this stuff. So that's the biggest myth that I had to deal with. Another myth is this whole dopamine distraction. People act as if dopamine is the reward transmitter, the love transmitter, all of these sort of simplistic things that we think about are neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters don't work that way. And so you have to, so I'm trying to help people to understand that you can increase dopamine levels when I'm stressed, when I'm happy, whatever, when I'm feeling awful, but people, so I'm trying to help people to understand that. And then there another thing, another misconception is that people like to separate marijuana from these other drugs as if marijuana is benign, whereas heroin is so awful. And we can have conditions under which we can show the reverse quite readily, uh, where marijuana becomes more dangerous than heroin. Um, and so these, all of these things are pharmacological agents and um, they all are dose dependent. They all depend on setting. They all depend on the history of the user, route of administration. All of these things are far more important than the drug itself. But um, people don't understand. What study was that that showed that in some cases marijuana could be more physically dependent or addictive than heroin in certain cases? Yeah, I never said physically dependent. See, that's a, so again, this is like when we think about misconceptions, people start with these assumptions. Like physical dependence is a minor sort of thing. But people have, unless you are physically dependent on alcohol or benzodiazepine or barbiturate, now you can probably die. But you can't die from heroin physically dependence. You can't die from an, a withdrawal syndrome related to heroin. But you can't from alcohol. So uh, so when you say what study, there is hasn't been one study that looked at uh, what is like, oh, are we going to compare the dangers of heroin to the dangers of marijuana? Be hard-pressed to get that sort of study approved. We're going to subject you to large, large doses of heroin and see how fast you die compared to marijuana. That's not the point. The point is, is that with marijuana, inexperienced people, uh, large doses in situations that are uncomfortable could feel like they're losing their mind. And they can feel like that for several days. You will never get that with heroin. You, that just would not happen with heroin. The concern with heroin is that if you push the dose so, so high, people will stop breathing. That's the major concern. But even that is rare. Most of the people who die from heroin-related death, they do so because they combine it with a benzodiazepine or alcohol. Um, and so it requires large, large doses to die from heroin overdose. And that's not to say that people should say, oh, instead of marijuana, I'm going to go out and use some heroin. No, you have to get some experience, be tolerant, all of these kinds of things. When I was looking more into your work, one of the common quotes that I saw was drugs aren't the problem, suggesting that there's clearly a more global problem within society, which we've sort of touched on already. So my question was, do you think current drug education or even the drug war is helping this problem or only further impeding it? And I think we've already touched on that already. So if you think you could change drug laws, which ones would you change first if you could? Um, first of all, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think I could change things, right? So I, I, I absolutely think I can, and I think we are seeing changes. You guys live in California, so you might not notice it. 
But the rest of the country, we're seeing this move. We're hearing politicians talking about decriminalizing drugs. That never happened. And so when we talk about decriminalizing drugs, we simply mean treating drug possessions just like we treat traffic violations. You don't arrest someone and give them a criminal record. They might be required to pay a fine or a warning, but that's the extent of it. So that's the that's the number one thing that we can do in the United States without re- any real major uh, problems doing that. Portuguese, the Portuguese have done that. The Czech Republic have done that. And they're both faring better than us on all of the major drug use indicators. Now, that's, that's one of the things that I would do. And in terms of drug education, I would also change radically the way we educate drugs. First things first. No more cops will ever be speaking about drugs. They will never be allowed to talk about what drugs do and don't do. They're not qualified. I mean, it, it would be like me going out telling uh, the NYPD how to deal with a terrorist situation. And then, like I have some authority. I don't know how to do that. Uh, that that's number one. And... I would also make sure that the people who do do the drug education, that they are qualified. Just because you study, for example, MDMA toxicity in an animal model does not mean that you're qualified to do drug education. Just because you are a scientist doing this does not mean that you are qualified to do drug education. There are many scientists in this field. I would not allow three minutes with my 14-year-old about drugs. What, what types of qualifications do you envision? Yeah. First thing, read high price. Second thing, make sure you take courses in this area. I'm writing several other books, and there will, and, uh, there will be other books that uh, come out on this subject. People have to get informed. They have to understand that the most important things that are related to drug education, most important thing, dose. Number one, dose is critically important. Route of administration, critically important. They have to understand that drug effects are predictable. I mean, despite the fact that whenever you have some new drug, they say this drug, this drug is unpredictable. When, when people start to say this drug, drug is unpredictable, that is a license to stop listening because that person does not know what they're talking about. Every year in the United States, in major research institutions across the country, we give thousands of doses of heroin, of crack cocaine, of marijuana, of methamphetamine, of all of these drugs that we have at some point said they're unpredictable. If they're so damn unpredictable, why are you spending tax dollars money to give them to your citizens? That just doesn't even make any sense. A lot of good points. What do you think is going on neurobiologically with the people that are not able to uh, function in society due to a substance? The first thing that you want to know if somebody is having a problem with drugs, you want to carefully observe their behavior to figure out what's going on. And you don't need the brain for that because when we think about this fact, the vast majority of people who use drugs don't have a problem, 80% or so. But we do have a percentage who does, a small percentage who do. So it tells you it's not the drug. So it might be something about that individual. And you think about, oh, how about genetics? How about something like that? Yeah, let's start there then. If you th- Then you say, well, let's look at the evidence. 
there is virtually none, virtually no evidence to show that there's some genetic predisposition or genetic sort of malfunction. So well, where are their data? Well, there are data with co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, people who have depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, all those sorts of things. You have a larger percentage of them. There are some data when you start to look at people who are destitute, people who are poor and that sort of thing. There are some data showing that. There are some data showing that people who have limited uh, responsibility skills, immaturity, those sorts of things. Plenty of data showing those sorts of things. So you can simply look at the behavior very carefully under the conditions which you see where they abuse the drug and you can figure it out. You can really figure it out what's happening. But the problem is, is that that requires some work. You actually have to give a good assessment. You actually have to talk to somebody and you have to understand the conditions when they use, the conditions when they have problems, the continuous conditions when they don't have problems. You have to really do a good assessment. Most people are not qualified to do a good assessment. Can you give us a brief preview of your talk here at Stanford next week? I'll talk about a little bit about my background, right, and, um, and how that colors what I do. And I'll talk a little bit about, um, and I, I will need to also talk about the role of race in drug policy and how we have ignored all of these things in psychiatry. Psychiatry has been one of the uh, major sort of villains in this. They, they have ignored uh, uh, race and all these issues. So I, I, need, to, I, I need to talk about psychiatry and uh, tell them how they can be better. And then I will, yeah, and I need to show some data, talk to them about particularly brain imaging. So I'll talk about some brain imaging stuff to show, show everybody how they've been hoodwinked, specifically with methamphetamine, uh, what people think is damage and cognitive impairment. And then I can show them how they all are complicit, particularly us who are seeking grants from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And then I can tell them what we can do about it to make society better. How's that? That's good. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. I always look forward to coming to the Bay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You did a, a postdoc here at UCSF, too, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. Love coming to the Bay. Now we generally like to end a bit more lighthearted, where we ask you three rapid-fire questions, which you can just answer off at the top of your head. So first question we always ask is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Carl, as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? It wouldn't be science. It would be, don't be careless with anybody's heart. That's great advice. Yeah, that is good. Okay, number two. We know you're a big basketball fan. I don't know if it's too early in the playoffs to really pick anyone, but who do you think will win the NBA Finals this year? I don't know, but I'm rooting for the Bay. All right, <laughs> go Warriors. <laughs> what was the most exciting scientific moment in your career so far? There have been so many, really. Science saved my life. You know, I, I, I love the notion. So I, it's, that's a hard question. I love the notion that it's one of the more egalitarian activities in which I have engaged. It's not more egalitarian than sports, but it is still one of the more. And so the best evidence wins. And when I understood that, when I was like, oh, the, le- the, the level, the playing field had been somewhat leveled for one of the few times in my life. And so um, I love science for that reason, and I have had 
so many great moments in science. Um, students doing well, my students being happy because they got into a program, they got a job that they wanted, um, um, being able to share science with some mother. Uh, like I met this woman over in England, her daughter um, died from an MDMA-related overdose death, too much, too potent, uh, being able to talk to her about my views and how we could keep people safe, and she agrees, and now she's an advocate and trying to do what she can to keep other people's kids safe. Science, and you know, uh, and talking to a father who lost his son because of a heroin overdose, but it really wasn't maybe heroin. It was probably a combination of heroin and another sedative. And he realized that that's where the education should be focused and not just on heroin. I mean, all of that is because I look at the data and read the data. Um, that's that's been those have been the best moments. Yeah, very well said. I think it, it is really great that we all get to be in this field where all those great things can happen. So, yeah, it was very well. But you have got to make them happen because, as you all know, in science, we are reinforced to be insular. We, in our labs, and not really communicate with the public. So you got to make it happen. Great. And we uh, look forward to your talk uh, at Stanford soon. Right on. Nice to meet you guys, and thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our speaker will be Jeremy Nathans, Professor of Molecular Biology and Genetics at Johns Hopkins University. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. NeuroTalk was founded by Eric DeSignore, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Luis Giam, Eddie Alvaron, David Lipton, Viet Nguyen, ADE, and myself, Andrew Gunner. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is NeuroTalk. I'm David Lipton. And I'm Andrew Gundry.